Well, today we're going to continue in our journey through the book of Matthew, and uh, we're finally going to get into chapter 5. Did a little bit of a bait and switch on you last week as we said we were going to start the Sermon on the Mount, and then we ended up taking the whole morning to look at some overview material, some introductory material, things that I thought were good for us to know before we actually got into the text. Uh, this morning we will get there, at least a little bit into chapter 5, but maybe I'll just take a moment here and refresh what we saw for those that weren't with us last week, uh, and I'll just briefly mention some of these things. So when we talked about interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, in other words, what do we do with this passage, with all the commands, all the imperatives that's the big word for do this. <laughs> so when we run across these things in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, how should we interpret that? What's the guiding interpretive principle that we use when we read this and other parts of the Bible? So I said that we should be careful not to see this simply as an extension or a continuation of the Mosaic Law. So Moses gives us the law, right? He, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, the sacrificial system, all these things. Now when we come to Jesus, it would be a mistake for us to just say, oh, well, there, here's Moses' law, and if we obey that, it's good. Here's Jesus' law. If we obey that, that's great. That's not what we should do with this. There are definitely similarities, right? Jesus is functioning as a greater Moses, not just a parallel Moses. So we need to be careful, that when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we do not just say, oh, cool, we know what to do with Moses' law, let's do the same thing with this. And we turn it into this sort of ladder that we can climb or rules to obey so that we can be made right with God. On the other hand, so that's one error, on the other hand, we need to be careful that we don't look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, Jesus fulfilled everything. He fulfilled the law. And that kind of takes us off the hook of obedience. So on one hand, we can hyper-apply the law and say, we have to do all this stuff or we're not going to be good with God. On the other hand, we can say, no, we don't really have to do anything because Christ did it all. And those are two errors that I said we need to stay away from. Rather than seeing it as something we do or something we don't have to do, we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of it being Christ's law. The law that he gives to his people and empowers us by his spirit to be able to obey it. So we shouldn't just see it as a new law to obey or something that's just theoretical or hypothetical. We should see this as what we are commanded to do through the power of the spirit of Christ. So that's summarizing what we said. This is the right way. This is the right way to think about these things. Also... As we prepared for chapter 5, we noted that the Beatitudes contain instruction that's true for every Christian, right? So there's no hierarchy. There's no, well, this is just instruction for the pastors, or this is for the really mature believers among us. Nope, this is for everybody. There's no distinction here that these commands apply to all Christians, not just a select group. We also noted that none of the things that Jesus commends to us in the Sermon on the Mount are what we call naturally occurring. Okay, nobody is just by nature poor in spirit or seeking the kingdom. These are things that God must do supernaturally. He must bring these things about in us, and that's why the importance of seeing it as a law that Christ enables us 
to fulfill. Because none of these things are just natural characteristics. Oh, there's Steve. He's just naturally humble and hurt. No, Steve is not naturally humble and hurt. This is the work of God's grace. We need to make sure we get this in mind. Third, we pointed out that the Beatitudes exemplify the kind of living that stands in stark contrast to the world around us. If your life is marked by the things that we're reading here in Matthew 5 to 7, there will be a difference in the way that your life looks and the way that everybody else's life around you looks. This is intentional. Jesus doesn't give these commandments to us so we can just blend in and look like everybody else. He gives this instruction so that we look like him. And that's going to create a difference between us and the people around us. And we're going to see how these things play together, how they interact as we move further into the Sermon on the Mount. So that was last Sunday. That's our overview for where we were and what we spent our time on. And now today, we are going to get into chapter 5, I promise. We're going to get there. There's a few introductory things that we need to mention, but they're coming right from the text. So we are going to deal with the text this morning. So why don't we open our Bibles, if you haven't done so already. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And you can follow along as I read verses 1 to 3. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. You'd follow along and we'll read together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, this morning we ask that as we handle your word, as we hear it, as we interact with it, that you would open our understanding through the power of your spirit and keep us from error. We know that we're not always going to get everything right, and we ask, Lord, that you'd give us the humility to be taught this morning, that we would not assume that we know everything that there is to know when we come to these texts, and maybe if... They're more familiar for some of us, Lord. Would you keep us in a humble state of learning? As we go through the Sermon on the Mount over the coming weeks and months, I ask that you'd give humility to us, give understanding to us. And for right now, this morning, God, we need your help. We don't want to just look at the Bible like any other book because it's not like any other book. It is the inspired word from you, from your mouth. Your word is here. And so, God, give us a kind of reverence that is appropriate for this word and also help us to be able to apply these things in the way that we live. So Father, we give you thanks and I pray that you would come now and be our teacher. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, whenever we start a new section of the scriptures, it's a good idea to get our bearings, to kind of identify where we're at, to set some context. So let's just back up to chapter 4 you can probably just move your eye up the page a little bit and see where we are and what brought us here. So Jesus is living in Capernaum at the time, and he has started his ministry by being an itinerant preacher, which means he's going around. We read about this in chapter 4. He goes throughout all of Galilee, and we explained what that meant, and he's teaching, he's healing, he's proclaiming the gospel, and so we saw this kind of threefold ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing as he goes about the area, and he has also called certain men to follow him. We call these the disciples. 
And we saw this in chapter 4 where Jesus calls them to leave their security, to leave their vocations, and rather come and join him on his mission. Well, chapter 4 ends, and you can see this in verse 25, with a picture of Jesus traveling all over, doing these things, preaching and teaching and healing, and he is attracting many people. If you read verse 25 of chapter 4, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is not a little gathering. Jesus is gaining reputation. He is gaining attraction from people. Now we know from reading other parts in Scripture that some of them are coming just for the goods, right? They want to experience the healing. They want to get something from Jesus. But large crowds either way are following him. And so these crowds are not primarily Jesus' audience. Now here's where we've got to talk about some interpretive things again. Jesus is ministering as he goes around and he's, he's going through all the region, right? He's all kinds of people, all kinds of contexts. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. But I don't think when we come to Matthew 5, the crowds are not his target audience. He is going to give specific instructions to his disciples. So sure, there's a ton of people around, right? That's why he goes on the mountain. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the primary audience of Jesus' teaching here is for his disciples. And I think... This is in part because Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. After his death and burial and resurrection, the church is established. And who is the foundation of the church? It's, Paul says it's the apostles and the prophets, the disciples, who are taking Jesus' teaching and establishing this this thing, this church, this living body together. And the church is going to be the instrument, the tool by which the gospel goes to all nations, by which the gospel is advanced and disciples are made and the Great Commission is fulfilled. So Jesus, knowing all of this, wants to spend focused, specific time teaching the men who are going to be foundational in the establishment of the church. So we start chapter 5, Jesus takes note of these crowds, he knows it's going to be really hard to give focused and intentional time to just his group of disciples, and so he withdraws to the mountain, he goes up on the mountain to create this kind of context where he can give some specific teaching to his disciples. Now, the Sea of Galilee, which they're kind of going around and, and ministering to, is kind of down in a basin. It's beautiful. I've never been there. I know some of you have been there. And the geography around the lake kind of rises up around. It's sort of in a basin, so to speak. And the reason I'm saying this is because we don't need to spend a lot of time worrying about, well, which mountain was he on? And, and why did he go up to that one? And it all kind of comes up away from there. Luke, in Luke chapter 6, is the parallel to the Beatitudes. And he gives the same kind of teaching there. And Luke describes Jesus as standing on a level place when he gives this sermon on the plane <laughs> or the level place. Okay, So my point is that we don't have to get really exercised about, well, where exactly is he and, and why did he go up there and not over here? What Matthew is doing in a broad sense is once again drawing our attention to the Moses-Jesus connection. Okay, so Moses, you remember, goes up on Sinai, up on the mountain. He gains revelation. God speaks to him. He writes down the Ten Commandments and probably other stuff, and he comes back down and he tells that to the people. Well, Matthew wants us to connect this, but in a greater way. So Jesus goes up on the mountain, but he doesn't receive some kind of external revelation and then give it to the people. He is the revelation. 
And it is his teaching now that he is going to give to the disciples. So you see the connection. Matthew wants us to see that. But he also wants us to see that this is a greater Jesus. It's a greater Moses. That he is doing things similar, reminiscent of, we might say. And yet there is definitely a degree of expansion. So the exact geography is not super important, but we are meant to see this connection to Moses and with Jesus bringing a greater law. So look at the last half of verse 1 and into verse 2. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, this detail shows us that Jesus is taking on the role of a teacher, the role of a rabbi. It was tradition that when a rabbi came into the synagogue, he would sort of ceremoniously seat himself in the middle of this kind of half-moon-shaped group of men, and he would begin to teach them from the Torah once he had sat down. So what Matthew is doing by giving us this detail is showing us that the Messiah, the one who was promised to be a prophet who would speak and teach the word of God to the people, Jesus is fulfilling those things. He's aligning Jesus in the role of a teacher and a rabbi. Even the phrase, he opened his mouth and taught them, has significance for Matthew. Because his goal is to place Jesus in connection with all of this prophecy. So later on, in chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus is going to be teaching again. This time he's teaching with parables. And Matthew picks up on this and he, he makes a quotation or a citation back to Psalm 78. Matthew 13, 35 says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden from the foundations of the world. So, even though we're changing contexts here, Jesus is going from itinerant and traveling around to stopping and he's going to settle down, he's going to teach his disciples. We're changing emphasis. Jesus is not just going with the shotgun approach, the broad, heal, teach, preach. He's narrowing that to his disciples. Even though those things are changing, there's something that hasn't changed. And that is the fact that Matthew is bent on making the connection for his readers that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He is the one who acts or fulfills or places himself in all of these roles that have been promised to us in the Old Testament. So, Jesus opens his mouth and he teaches them. Them being the disciples, those who he had called to follow him. And of course, there's other people standing around who are going to hear this. He had attracted quite a following at this point, and they're going to come along for the ride as well. And they'll be helped by this, and they'll be instructed by this, but they are not Jesus' primary audience. Like I said, he is focusing on his disciples. His primary purpose is to instruct them on how they should live now that they are in the kingdom, that they are believers. And you say, oh, hang on, we don't, I don't see a conversion story for the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, how can you say that they are there, that they are in the kingdom, that they are following Jesus? That's a good question, and I have a couple of reasons, and I'm going to tell you what they are and then why it matters, and then we'll get into verse 3. So my first reason for saying with a certain level of confidence that the disciples at this time we would say are regenerate, they're believers in Jesus, is of what we saw in chapter 4. 
So in chapter 4, a couple weeks ago, we looked at this. Jesus demonstrates divine authority in calling the disciples to himself. You remember this? So Jesus says, follow me, and his word produces the effect. And then we went to other places in Scripture, and we saw that same word that Matthew uses here for calling used in Romans 8, for example, to refer to the sovereign call of God unto salvation. Same kind of calling. We just see it externally in Matthew as an illustration. So when Jesus calls the disciples to himself, he's not calling them to come and remain unconverted. He is calling them in his grace to himself. And we can talk about that more later, but that's the first reason. Jesus has called them in the same sense as he calls everyone. The second reason I think that these disciples are believers at this point is because how Jesus talks to them. So this is why I say they are the audience here, not the broad crowd. And it matters when we think about what Jesus says. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5, for example. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father, who is in heaven. We don't consider God to be the Father of unregenerate people, in, in the salvific sense, right? There are some people who say, well, we're all children of God because we're made in Him." but that's not what Jesus is getting at. He tells them, do these things, do these works, so that people would see this and glorify your Father in heaven. And we can, you got to be careful with logic in the Bible, right? We don't want to use logic to silence what the Bible says. But sometimes, and oftentimes, it's very logical. If these are unregenerate men, why would Jesus say, go in your own power, do your best, and hopefully people will see that and be attracted to something? That makes no sense. He is telling them, as his followers as his disciples go do your good deeds you're in do it and draw attention to the glory of your father God who is in heaven so these and other reasons is why I'm saying this instruction is given to what we would say regenerate men and I think this helps us to see that these are not just evangelistic tools to kind of woo people into the kingdom through their good works. Jesus is not telling a bunch of unregenerate people, hey, if you do this, there's probably better odds of you getting into the kingdom. That's not what he is saying. He is teaching them these things because they are the children of God. He has called them to himself. Now, okay, we don't see a chapter and a verse saying, and, and Peter and Andrew fell on their face and repented of their sins and confessed Christ. But that is the message he was preaching, a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so I think it is right for us to assume an informed assumption here that these are believers at this point. And of course, it would be great if everybody in the world, believer or non-believer, acted this way. Can you imagine a world like this, <laughs> where everybody was poor in spirit, and everybody was meek, and everybody sought the kingdom first? That'd be wonderful. But as we've already seen, these are not things that are possible in the natural man. These kinds of things that Jesus is talking about are only enabled by the Holy Spirit of God, and that's what we're seeing here with the disciples. That Jesus is instructing them as those who are believers. Now, I think this also personalizes the instruction of the Sermon on the Mount for us, right? If these things are intended for Jesus' disciples, 
and we are Jesus' disciples, then it's for us. So getting back to the obedience piece, that we can't just say, oh, that's for somebody else. That was for Jesus' disciples. That doesn't apply to us. No, this is for us. And we can do these things empowered by the Spirit of God. Also, it gives us a realistic view of how to think about people who are not yet in the kingdom. We shouldn't get super bent out of shape when people who are apart from Christ don't act like this. Of course they're not going to act like this. The Spirit has not yet regenerated their heart and given them the ability to live this way. So relax and do verse 16. <laughs> That's why Jesus says this. Let your light shine before others. Do the things in obedience to Christ so that those apart from Christ see your life and say, hmm, I want that. Or what's different about that? This is why I say there is a necessary difference that is marked by obedience to the Sermon on the Mount. So there is an evangelistic bent in the sense that as we live these things out, the world will become attracted, in a sense, to that. So this is where we're at. Jesus is up on the mountain, up on the hill. He's setting up shop to teach his disciples, and he's going to launch into this greatest sermon. So let's get going. Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this whole first section, called the Beatitudes, follows a very similar structure. And so verses 3 through 11 contain a statement of blessing in the present tense, blessed are... Okay, and then that's followed up by a statement of causality. Why are the ones who act a certain way or do a certain thing blessed? This is the structure throughout all of the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 11. Now you will notice that the first and the last Beatitudes, so verses 3 and verse 10, both have the present inheritance of the kingdom as their uh, result, while the ones between hold out a future reward. Are you seeing that here in the text? It's the difference between is and shall be. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, we know that this entire section has to do with what? The kingdom. Right? This is what Jesus is talking about here. And the instructions between 3 and 10 or 11 are providing us the ethical standards of righteousness for those who are living in the kingdom. This is what should mark our lives now as we live as followers of Jesus, living under the rule of Christ. So Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. So let's do a little bit of word definition here because we're going to see this Several times in the coming weeks. The word blessed, of course, is all over the Bible. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament, it's everywhere here. And generally refers to the happy or contented state of those who have either received something from the Lord or are walking in obedience to the will of God and are enjoying the fruit of that obedience. This is generally how the Bible uses this word, blessed. And the word used here for blessed, and you've probably heard this, is makarios. And that's your language lesson for the morning. Now, this word has a number of different meanings uh, or voices, we might say, if you're into the kind of language and syntax stuff. But the most common translation is happy. To be blessed is to be happy. However, I think we need to go beyond that just a little bit 
in our understanding of how Jesus is using it here in Matthew chapter 5 because if we reduce makarios to simply mean happy, like that's going to kind of make this silly or trivial in a sense. So that is a right definition, but there's more than one definition. There's more than one definition. inflection, if you want to say it that way, to this word. So let me just give you a couple issues here. The problem, I think, with the word happy is that this is what happens with language. Over time, words take on meanings. This, is, this happens naturally, or we might say it just happens as a result of language and context and location. So the translation happy is right. The problem is, for us, Happy has like this connotation of puppies and balloons, right? It's hard to separate happiness from things that are just kind of light and, and joyful and like this. And that is not exactly what Jesus is getting at. If we just say, oh, well, makarios means happy, we're going to miss the kind of solid and deep-seated joy and contentedness that Jesus is driving us to in the Sermon on the Mount. So, Happy, yes, but we've got to get rid of the puppies and the balloons, okay? Now, I'm not promoting cruelty to animals. I'm just saying, do away with the puppies, okay? Fortunate would be another good translation, but that has connotations, too, of, of luck or chance or, oh, good fortune, okay? That's a, but kind of getting at that same idea, R.T. France is one of my favorite commentators here on Matthew, and I like his definition. He says, Makarios doesn't mean that a person simply feels happy, but that they are in a happy situation. Okay, so are, are you getting where we're kind of driving with this? That it's more than a surface level, kind of chipper happiness kind of a thing? It is deep. It is rooted in something. And namely, the promises of God. So let me give you a couple examples from the Psalms. And this is where I got the most help. Same word being used back in the Psalms, and when we hear the word blessed or blessed is the one or something like that, some of us probably think of Psalm 1 and 2. The whole book of Psalms opens with, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, that whole thing. And chapters 1 and 2 of the Psalms give us this snapshot of what the righteous man looks like, the blessed man. What does that look like? And it opens with, blessed is the man who does this. And chapter 2 closes with the fact that the one who takes refuge in the Lord will be blessed. So we have this picture in Psalms 1 and 2 of the reward of righteousness, if you will, and the stability of the one who makes the Lord his refuge. But that still doesn't really give us a definition, does it? Just kind of an example. So as we move into the Psalms, Psalm 21 gets, I think, about as close to a definition as we're going to get. So let me share this. You can write this down. Psalm 21, verses 6 and 7. So David is rejoicing in the strength that God has given to the king, to him, and we translate this, of course, future to the Messiah king as well. But this is what he says. This is Psalm 21, 6. For you make him most blessed forever. And now the rest of it, I think, is defining what that means. So, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. You hear those three elements? Gladness, joy, 
being firmly established in the Lord, I think all of this is getting at the primary thrust of what the word makarios, blessed, means. To have joy in the Lord, that things are well with you. Things might not be easy. Don't, this is why the word happiness falls short. Because we think happy, we think, oh, cool, everything's good. And that is the thrust of this word, but it is not superficial. So I'm doing all of this to try to help us understand when Jesus says, blessed are, he is going far beyond a circumstantial, emotional kind of response or feeling. He is getting at the root, the foundation, the base of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be blessed. And so that is the definition of makarios that I am working with from Psalm 21, 6 and 7. And you can reduce it down as much as you're comfortable doing, but that is the primary thrust of this word, gladness, joy, and stability in the Lord. All right, back to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I mentioned last week there have been many, many misinterpretations of the Beatitudes. Many people have taken them and, and made them into something they were never intended to be. This is one of the primary examples as people have looked at this and said, oh, okay, well, we need to then impose a kind of forced poverty on people. If you give up all your stuff, you have no money, no possessions, if you are wretched, that would be the old word for it, then you will be blessed. Well, apparently they missed the little words, poor in spirit, and they took this to mean that the Lord would bless the one who purposefully impoverishes themselves. That would be an example of a mis application of this text. You've heard me say this many times, and I'm going to say this a lot more in Matthew, but it is a severe mistake for us to take the instruction of the Bible and reduce it down to a physical or temporal application only. This is what I mean. If, when we read the instructions of the scripture, if all we get out of that is, okay, how does that how does that affect my, my, my person, my body, my action? We get a little bit further and Jesus is going to say, you know, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Anyone who reaches for a knife doesn't understand the meaning. And that's what I'm getting at, that these are spiritual applications. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So if he's not commending a kind of physical or material poverty, what does he mean? What does it mean for us or those in the kingdom to be poor in spirit? Well, I do think this has to do with poverty, but it's not a poverty of financial or monetary means. I am calling this a poverty of the self, a kind of emptying that must take place in order for one to be in the kingdom. So what do we normally mean when we talk about poverty? If you hear the word poverty or poor, uh, what, what do we associate that? What does that mean if we say, well, that, that person is poor, or that was done poorly, or something like that? Usually we're talking about something lacking, being without something, right? That's this generally, we, we can contrast that with riches or rich, which has the connotation of abundance or overflow or sufficiency or kind of whatever word you want to use. And I think... The Apostle Paul helps us understand what Jesus is getting at here. He's writing to the Corinthians, second time, and he is reminding them of the grace 
of Christ. And he uses this poverty riches paradigm to try to explain what's going on. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So what does Paul mean here when he says that Jesus became poor? Something went away. There is something that used to be there that's not there anymore. Something was given up. It is no coincidence that we read Philippians chapter 2 this morning, talking about Jesus emptying himself, giving up something. Something that was there is not there anymore. He became poor. He took on flesh. I'm saying the same kind of principle is being taught here in Matthew 5, 3. In order to live in the kingdom, we must be emptied of ourselves. We must become poor in spirit. Why is that? Why is this an emphasis? And, I don't know if we'll have time to get into this, why is it first on the list? (laughs) I think that's significant as well. See if you can figure that out as we go through. The reason that this is so important, the reason we're called to this, is because there must be a kind of emptying before there can be a filling. If you are full of yourself, if your spirit, small s, If your spirit is the one that is dictating and controlling and determining the attitudes and the actions of your life, there's no room for Christ. So is it any wonder that Jesus says, hang on, principle one, empty yourself. Become poor in spirit. How can we possibly do what the scriptures command and be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're already overflowing with our own? You, get the, you can fill in whatever kind of metaphor you want here, a, a container that holds something or a pie chart or whatever. The idea here is that there must be a kind of emptying in order to be filled with the Spirit of God. So what makes someone poor in spirit? Here's my definition. To be poor in spirit is to have a right view of yourself in light of God and his character. To be poor in spirit is to have a right understanding of yourself in light of God and his character. This is not self-determination. This is not just coming up with something on your own. Right view of yourself in light of God. Let me give you a biblical example. I think this fits. Think back to the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah receives the vision in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord seated on the throne. He sees the smoke, the cherubim, the glory of God, and he sees all of this revealed. What does he say? Does he look at that and go, oh, cool, I must be really great because God has chosen to reveal this to me. I am so special. No, What does he do? He falls on his face before God and he immediately recognizes his position in comparison to God and he says, woe is me, I am undone. I have a filthy mouth and I'm with a bunch of other people who have filthy mouths. What are we going to do? Because my eyes have seen the Lord. That is what I'm talking about, to be poor in spirit. 
Isaiah sees himself rightly when compared to the holiness and the glory of God, which is where I get my definition that to be poor in spirit is to have a right view of yourself when compared to God and his character. Isaiah demonstrates this for us, and and many, many other characters in the Bible give us a good picture of this. And I'm saying this is what it means to be poor in spirit, to understand our position before God and feel the kind of appropriate poverty of self. You should, when you experience God, feel inadequate. You should feel lacking. You should feel poor in spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it even stronger than this. He says, if one feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means you have never seen him. To be poor in spirit is to have a right view of ourselves in light of God and his holiness, his attributes, his character. All of those things should shape the way we see ourselves. It means... That we need to, each one of us, stop depending on and relying on the things that are natural to ourselves. Those are the things that need to be emptied out of us. That's the poverty that we're getting at. The the self-reliance, the, you know, kind of resting your laurels is the way to put it on your education or your background or your experience or, well, I've done this or I had this or I used to learn this or I've taught this. Get rid of that. There's no room for that. If we are to be filled with the Spirit of God, rather, we need to humbly view ourselves in light of who God is. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And I think this is somewhat similar to what Paul is getting after in Galatians 5. So he's gone through fruits of the Spirit and and some other things in this whole section, and he's talking about how the Spirit is opposed to the flesh, and the flesh is opposed to the spirit. He's kind of getting at the fact that you can't have two equal authorities. You can't have two equal ruling entities. One is going to overpower the other. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 5, and we see we need to be poor in spirit, the point is that everything in you that is natural, that is sinful, that is tied to your, mm, your desires to do what you want, get rid of it. Let it be emptied from you. And the hope that we have is not that you need to do this yourself. We've already established the fact that all of these things Jesus is teaching us are works that are brought about by his spirit alone. So I can stand here and preach to myself and preach to you that we must become poor in spirit because we all have hope of this through the power of Christ and through his spirit working in us. And Jesus says that those who live this way are the ones who dwell in his kingdom. Meaning, there is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. There is no one, no one in the kingdom who has not been emptied of their self and filled with the spirit of God. So if we put all of this together, okay, what, it, what it means to be blessed what it means to be poor in spirit, I think we can summarize Matthew 5, 3 this way. Those who understand their position before God by rejecting self in exchange for his spirit 
will live glad and joyful lives as they possess the kingdom. Those who understand their position before God by rejecting self, being emptied of those things in exchange for the Spirit of God will live blessed lives, be glad and joyful as they possess the kingdom. Or to use Jesus' own words, we can say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot we need to talk about regarding the kingdom. And we don't have time this morning. We're going to get into this in the coming weeks. The kingdom is all over Matthew. It came. It's coming. It's here. It's all over the place. So we got some work to do with the kingdom, and we will get into this in the coming weeks. But today, I want to close by asking a couple of questions in light of what we've seen about the blessedness, about the poverty of spirit, about how all this fits together in the kingdom. Let me ask us some questions. Do our lives look like this? If someone knew the definitions that we've been talking about this morning and they looked at your life, would they say, yeah, yeah, I see that. Does this mark us as Christians? If you're not a believer this morning and you're here, I'm glad you're here. But this, this is not for you. This is for those who have been brought into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Are we like this? Are we actively pursuing this kind of humility, this kind of emptying of ourselves in the power of the Spirit of God. We've already affirmed you can't do this alone. You cannot empty yourself. We must pray and ask the Lord to do this. And I was even thinking, just as I'm looking ahead to all of these beatitudes and all the commands, all the do this kind of stuff, I think, I think it's right to say, Lord, help me do this and that. But more than that, more than that, I want to pray, Lord, make me this way. And when you pray that God would help you, we're still kind of saying, well, I, I really have to do it. But to pray, God, make me poor in spirit, that's a work that he'll do. And that's a prayer that he'll answer. So I want to encourage you. I, I'm, I'm not presenting us as a church with an impossible command. I'm presenting us as an act of obedience, empowered by the Spirit of God, that will enable us to, in various degrees, empty ourselves of our own self-reliance, our own, you know, it's just so easy to rely upon ourselves, isn't it? And that's, it's so important for us to turn away from that and to become poor in spirit. So I'm saying that through the Spirit of God, through His Word, we have everything we need for this. Nobody here is without excuse now. You got that? All your excuses are gone. We can pursue this together. We can encourage each other with this. And I pray that this would be true of every one of us. And what a great, great thing that we have time now to come to the Lord's table. <laughs> what a wonderful opportunity to bring this to the Lord, to confess that too often we rely on ourselves and to ask God to empty us, to make us poor in spirit so that we can be effective in the kingdom. Would you pray with me to that end? Father in heaven, I praise you for this word this morning, and I praise you, Lord, that you call us not to figure things out on our own. You do not give us instruction and then say, well, I hope you figure it out, but rather in your wisdom and in your providence, God, you have given your spirit to us to enable obedience, to give us hope for our lives looking like this. We are hopeless apart from you. But with 
the enabling of your spirit and through the instruction of your word, I believe that you will help us to be this way. So God, as we pursue obedience, as we seek to be more poor in spirit and humble in heart, would you give us strength to make this pursuit and would you make us this way? It's our only hope that we would be made more and more like Christ and less and less like ourselves. So Father, help us to embrace Jesus, the one who was perfectly poor in spirit, and help us to follow his example as you give us the strength. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.